Last week we talked about how we are to behave and interact with each other as Christ followers. And we talked about the bondage of license and legalism. And we talked about how the gospel promises freedom from both of those things. And as part of our discussion of freedom, we shared Paul's description of a believer's freedom. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10.23, he says this, I have the right to do anything you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. So in other words, the essence of Christian freedom is that we are in a sense set free from living just for us, and now we're set free to live for the good of others. So our ability to live free from self-centeredness is only because of the grace of God demonstrated through the cross of Christ. And the point of our freedom as believers is to live for Jesus. Amen? And Jesus calls us to live as an ambassadors for him, to live out a gospel witness. And so church is basically gathering to worship God together and to be empowered and prepared and equipped for ministry, to go out and to do the work that he's called us to do. It's not just for us, right? It's for us to worship him, to come together, to be strengthened in fellowship, to pray, to be empowered, to be filled, to be equipped, and then to go out. I've used this analogy before. If you went to the best med school in the world and you graduated at the top of your class and they gave you a diploma and you got licensed and you're a medical doctor, but you never practiced medicine, are you a doctor or just somebody who spent a lot of money on education? And so as Christians, we can have a lot of knowledge, we can spend a lot of time in the Word, we can be prayerful, we can gather, we can serve, and then we can never go out and live as ambassadors for Jesus. And there's a lot of reasons why that is. I think sometimes we're afraid, we don't know, but I want to look at that this morning because we know that we need His power, we need His Spirit, we need His Word, and we need His Bride, the church, the body of Christ coming together. Each of us have gifts, different gifts, to be used together as the body of Christ for his glory and his purposes. And so last week, the focus was on living as disciples in our context as believers. We talked about what it looks like as we interact with each other. And now I want to look at what it means to share our faith with a world that is both ignorant of and therefore continues to be opposed to the things of God. They don't know any better. They're ignorant in the classic sense. They don't know about God. They have a notion of who God is. Most of the time, it's a very flawed notion. And as a result, they're opposed to the things of God. And I know people like to say, oh, we're increasingly living in a culture where people are opposed to God. Human beings have always been opposed to God. We were born, the Bible says, we were enemies of God at one time. That's always the case. It will always be the case but for God's grace and intervention in our lives. So I want to look at what it means to share our faith with the world. And so the title of the message is That By All Means We Might Save Some. That by all means we might save some. Also comes from 1 Corinthians earlier in chapter 9. Paul's talking about what he does with his freedom. And it says this, 1 Corinthians 9, I'm going to begin in verse 19. For though I am free from all, 
Paul understands, I know that I'm free. I know that Christ has set me free. And so he's going to talk about now what he does. I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. Boy, doesn't that preach? You know, if, if you say, hey, you know, do you want to you be the chief servant? Do you want to be the chief foot washer? Do you want to be the person who works the hardest? Nobody raises their hand. I mean, when the disciples were together and Jesus began to wash their feet, not only was that a profound example of everything Jesus had taught and done up until that point, it was a profound example of how they didn't get it. Because foot washing was reserved for the lowly. And so the fact that Jesus washed their feet, yes, it was an example, but at that point, they must have realized, at no point did they just sit down. They were all kneeling, to, uh, sitting down on the floor, and they were close to each other, and their feet were all dirty. They would have never begun to eat without somebody washing their feet. So at that point, they must have realized, for all he said, for all the example, for all he lived, they missed it. Because you know why? Every single person in that room thought it was beneath them to wash feet. And so Jesus got up, and at that moment, they must have been like, man, every single one of them. Paul says, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside of the law, I became as one outside the law. And then again, he qualifies, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means, I might save some. And if we need to know why, Paul continues and he tells us this. Verse 23, I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. I want to be, and I want us together to be a church that runs in such a way as to get the prize. Amen? Amen. Let me just pray. Lord, as always, open our hearts to your word. God, have your way in this place. Holy Spirit, we welcome your presence and power. Change lives today, Lord. Help us to surrender to you more fully today so you can continue to work in and through each one of us, God. Meet us here. Change us here. Let us leave here different than when we came in for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So before I talk about living as witnesses for Jesus, I want to make a few critical points. I want, to, I want to ground a few things. One has to do with what I said last week about being joy-filled. We need to be in a relationship with Christ, led by God, empowered by the Holy Spirit. We cannot do anything apart from Christ. So although I'm going to talk about Paul and his strategy and his method and his posture, understand full well that you could be brilliant you can be a wonderful theologian. You can be articulate. I think you've heard me share the quote before. A.W. Tozer said, The devil is a better, a better theologian than any of us and is a devil still. 
So you can be bright, you can be capable, but if you are not led by the Spirit, if you are not empowered in a relationship with Christ, it's just words. We can't do anything apart from him. But our posture, our attitude toward others is very important. I said last week that legalists, religious people, always seem to be so happy to cast judgment. Jesus wept going into Jerusalem because he knew that people would reject him. Two times in scripture that says Jesus wept. One is when Lazarus died, the other is when he's going into Jerusalem. And he weeps because he knows they just are not gonna know. They're expecting a conquering king and Jesus is coming as a different kind of Messiah. And so he weeps. Our heart should break for the lost. And if they don't, then we're not trying to win converts. We're just trying to win arguments. We're not worried about being righteous. We're worried about being right. Just getting people to see the world and think like we do. But here's the, here's the guidance the Bible gives us. 1 Peter 3.15. In your hearts... In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. I mean, I could, I could just stop and we could just unpack and just preach into that. In your hearts, in the fiber of your being, the heart in Hebrew, it's the source of everything. Everything emanates from that. So he's saying, in your heart of hearts, in the fiber of your being, honor Christ, adore Christ, love Christ the Lord as holy. Understand he is perfect and beautiful and set apart. And if you don't do that, if you haven't done that, if you're not striving to do that, because we don't have that perfect, we always put something else on there, then we got to stop there. Before we go on and we talk about strategy and we talk about posture and we talk about the methods that Paul used, we got to stop there. Do I honor Christ the Lord as holy in my heart of hearts? And then in 1 Peter, he continues always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Do you have hope? Do you live in such a way that people are going to ask you, they're not going to know what it is. I mean, I think the greatest comment in the world is someone comes up to you out of the blue and goes, are you a Christian? Ever had that happen? Or you ever see somebody and you just go, I just know right? That's what he's talking about. Have that kind of hope that people are like, what is, it, what is it about you? I mean, are you living in the same world I am? Because things are tough, and you seem to always, and I don't mean going through life with a, you know, oblivious smile. That's not what I'm talking about. Because we struggle, we have emotions, we get sad, we get angry. That's not what I mean. I mean, underneath all that, having a hope that is so powerful and prevalent that people will ask you, it's not a question of if they will. It's a question of when they will. And then be prepared to give a defense for anyone who asks you for a reason that hope was in you. Obviously, you have to have the hope in you, and then you have to be prepared. But then he says, yet yeah, do it with gentleness and respect. Church, I got to confess to you, and I don't know about you, but a lot of times with people, I'm not gentleness and respectful. I got a confession to make. You're probably going to stop going and be like, that pass is crazy. Becky's going to be like, why did you say that? I love Judge Judy. 
Can I just, can I just, I, I love, I go home and that's how I unwind. I put on the TV and I love Judge Judy because she says all the things to people sometimes you want to say. You know, she just speaks that truth. She doesn't, it's just like, you know, people are lying. You know, people are saying crazy stuff and she just says it, right? The stuff you want to say. But you can't, right? You can't. I mean, let's judge Judy. You can't really, it's a little, you know, you put people off of that. She's a little aggressive. Because we got to be gentle, respectful, but it's easy to get in that place. It's easy, especially when you know people lying, when you know people, it's, a, it's easy to want to be like, you know what? You are, you know, full of it. That's not true. You want to do, and sometimes you got to do that in love. But with gentleness, with respect, you guys still laughing at Judge Duty, right? That's my guilty pleasure, Judge Duty and iced coffee. That's it. <laughs> Tell people about the reason. Be prepared to share your testimony, to tell people how you can live with peace and, peace and joy, even in the midst of trials. They can say, yeah, you know, I've gone through difficulty. In fact, you may, maybe you're in the middle of difficulty, but say, but there's a, there's a God who's bigger than our difficulty. There's a God who's bigger than our suffering. In fact, the Christian God is the only God who enters in to our suffering See, Paul says, be gentle and respectful, not arrogant and mean. So many Christians preach at people instead of to them. They talk down to people. I don't know about you, but before I was a Christian, people would be condescending. They would talk down. It's condescending and it's unhelpful. And here's what it does. It creates a barrier instead of a bridge. It creates a barrier instead of a bridge. I believe one of the best places in Scripture that we see Paul living out being all things to all people is in Acts chapter 17. If you want to turn there, we're going to draw out some important principles. And this is going to be a preaching and a teaching. Are we ready to learn? I know it's early. This is like the first class of the day, right? But we should be students. No matter how much we know, we should want to know more. We should want to reach for things a little beyond our grasp. And the Bible, no matter how you go, it's always deeper, right? You can always go deeper. But we should seek to learn and grow. And sometimes if things are unfamiliar, it's okay. It's good. Read books that you have to look up the words in the books. That's okay. You know, people are like, I don't want to read that book. It's all words I don't know. Well, you know how you know words that you don't know? You find out what they mean. So it's okay to want to learn and grow. When I was a little kid, they used to say, let's put on our thinking caps. Do they still say that anywhere? Anybody still say that? In school, that's what they said all the time. Okay, it's time to put on your thinking caps, right? So today we're going to learn and grow together, amen? So we talk about witnessing, about sharing our faith in a world that is openly hostile to Christ. What should motivate us? I mean, that should be the first question. What, what is our motivation? What motivates Paul? What motivated Jesus, love for lost people? You looking at my notes? We're going to see that in Acts 17, verse 16, when it says this. It says, Paul was greatly distressed. Some translations say his spirit was provoked. His heart was broken. That should be our motivation. So Acts 17, we're going to quickly summarize the first few sections, and then we're going to focus in on verses 16 through 34. So I'm going to read it, and then we're going to kind of pull some things out. 
Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom. In other words, Paul did what Paul typically does. It was a habit. It was part of Paul's routine. It was part of his lifestyle. It wasn't out of the ordinary. It was what Paul did. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. I know we live in a world where everybody has an opinion and everybody has a soapbox and everybody has a platform. And I've said to people before, when I've counseled, when I've, when I've preached, whatever, it doesn't matter what I think. Who cares what I think? Who cares what you think? It matters what the Bible says. It matters what God says. That is the foundation of everything. And so Paul reasoned to them from the scriptures that must be foundational. You can have all kind of flowery language and you can have eloquent speech and you can be dead wrong if it opposes God's word. It says explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. And saying, this Jesus who, I'm a, who I proclaim to you is the Christ. I mean, this isn't just he went up there, he read something, and that's it. He's reasoning, he's explaining, he's proving. We're going to look a little more into that dialogue, what that means, what that actually looked like. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. So in other words, as a result of this ministry, some people were saved. Some people decided to come along and join up and be part of the missions team, right? Because if you're a Christian, you're part of the missions team, right? You're a minister, right? It's not just for the staff, just for the pastors. You are a minister of the gospel. You've been given, Paul says, the ministry of reconciliation. You've been reconciled and now you're called to, a rec- to be a reconciler. This is how the text begins. So we have Paul and his people. After they were set free in Philippi, now the missions team arrives at Thessalonica, and Paul did what Paul always does. See, we got to make things a habit. we got to make things a routine so they feel less uncomfortable, more of an ordinary thing what we do. In conversation, look for opportunities to share your faith. Look for natural entry points to your testimony. Make it as part of your dialogue, especially with people who you know are far from God. So this is how it begins. Again, they're there. He's doing what he does. And we see many were persuaded to believe, yet there were some unpersuaded Jews who created trouble for Paul and the team. Because how many people know when you're doing God's work, you'll face opposition? People aren't going to be like, oh, welcome. We were waiting for you. No, that's not how it happens. Paul, did Paul go, you know what? Forget about this. Forget about this. this is, you know, I was planning on doing this, but these people, no. No, he expected opposition. We shouldn't be surprised by that. Jesus says when people hate you, remember they hated him first. They hate you because they hate the Christ that's in you because they don't know because they're lost. Verse five, but the Jews were jealous. 
So some of the motivation for hating Paul, for hating what was happening is the focus was off of them and their process and their legalism and their and this system, this hierarchy that made them the top of the food chain, that gave them a comfortable life, that made them ruler and controller of all. And they didn't like that. So some of their motivation it was just self-centered jealousy. And taking some of the wicked men of the rabble, we're in verse 5, they formed a mob and they set the city in, up, in an uproar. Because how many of you will know when there's people that are troublemakers, they're not happy to just be troublemakers. They want to cause all kind of chaos and all kind of trouble. And they set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And so we see the troubles result and one of their friends getting grabbed. They drag him out since they can't find Paul, Timothy, and Silas, and they make accusations. These people, that are turning the world upside down. Church, can anyone say the same thing about us? Can anyone say about us that we are a church that turns the world upside down for Jesus? Because when you contend for the sake of the gospel, with gentleness, with respect, but when you contend for the sake of the gospel, there will be physical and spiritual opposition. That's how it works. And people that are, I mean, the gospel turns the, your world upside down. That's what it does. We, we said last week it's an upside down kingdom. But when I encountered Christ and I came to believe the truth, it turned my world upside down. Everything I thought I should have been living for, I realized it was a, it was a waste. I was, it was a fruitless pursuit. I began to try and want to live for others. I began to try to see that the things that the world and culture had taught me weren't correct, and in some ways, they were completely the opposite. See, each person must choose to say yes or no to Jesus. And we pray that God draws people to himself and he softens hearts. We must be obedient to preach the gospel, but God is the only one who can change hearts and lives. And so in Thessalonica, there were some who were saved and there were others who wanted to destroy anybody who believed in Jesus. Verse 10, then the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, he went into the Jewish synagogue. So now he got kicked out of one place for preaching and causing trouble. And for his safety, they, they send him out. You know, we got to get you out of here because these people that, you know, they're going to kill you. So now if, if Paul was a reasonable man, Paul would have said, you know what? We're going to just take it slow. Maybe we'll preach in the next place, but maybe we'll have like, we'll preach and then we'll recover, the, you know. But that's not what the text says. It says, when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue, and Paul began again to do what Paul does. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica, and they received the word with all eagerness. And then it says this, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. In other words, Paul was convincing in his approach. Paul said some things that seemed to resonate, but they still said, okay, okay, Paul, we're listening to you, but wait a minute, because we know the word of God. 
So we're going to make sure that what you're saying lines up with the word of God. How many people and how many churches and how many pastors just say things and people go, oh, yeah, that's, you know, that sounds so good. And that's not in the word of God. That's, that's an opinion. That's speculation. That's not what the Bible teaches. And people celebrate, oh, yeah, that's nice. But these people, it says they were more noble. What does that mean? They are more mature. They were more thoughtful. And they examined the word of God. Because they understand that that's what matters. Many of them, therefore, believe. Now we went from a few people here, and now these people who are open to Paul's message, who are examining the Scriptures, now many of those people believe, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the Word of God was being proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. So they followed. It wasn't enough to get out of my town. You know, Paul, you're a troublemaker. Get out of here. No, they're following Paul around. They are actively opposed to Paul's ministry. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. And those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him, as soon as possible, they departed. So now they're like, listen, Paul, we, once again, you're causing trouble. We like you, but you know, you don't make things easy, so you gotta go. They sent Paul and Silas to Berea during the night, and some of the troublemakers had traveled. So Paul upsets people once again, and once again, Paul set away for his safety. And now again, Paul could say, you know, this has been a rough trip. This is not the vacation I had imagined. And so we're going we're gonna to lay low, guys. We're going to take a day off. But no. Paul takes advantage of the opportunity. And Paul begins to preach at the Areopagus. Now Athens, you must understand, was like the Cambridge and Oxford of the day. It was the intellectual center of the world. There was no place with more intellectual brain power than Athens. And so Paul understands when he's in Athens, wait a minute. Now, we don't know if Paul, Paul could have been intimidated. We, Paul, you know, but this is the pinnacle of intellectual discussion of the day. And Paul immediately thinks, now I have an opportunity wasn't discouraged by the things that had happened before? No. Verse 16, now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, this is the verse we read before, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. He looked around and he realized for all the intellectual power, they are lost. They have no idea. Look at the things they worship. Look at the idols. Look at what the culture celebrates. Ring true to any of us? And so it says, so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day, those who happen to be there. Now the marketplace, market is not a market as we'd understand a market where you go to shop. This is like a marketplace of ideas. All day, literally, People just spent time that they just sat there and argued. That's all they did all day. Some of you, it's like that in your house, right? All day, they just argued about things. They just debated. Just people would come and, well, this is what I think. And they'd stand there and da 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 you know, right? Verse 18 says, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers 
also converse with him. Now, Stoicism and Epicureanism were the two main Hellenistic or Greek schools of thought, schools of philosophy that came after Aristotle. And while differing in their fundamentals, both philosophical schools recognized that the goal of philosophy is to be transformed as, as human enlightenment, as self, self-idealization or transformation, is for us to say, what is our view of perfection? And then we're going to attain that. That was the goal of, of the philosophies. Their ways to get there were different, but that was the goal. Of course, they knew what we all know, that this is unattainable. This is unrealizable. But in a very general sense, Stoics... They cared about virtuous behavior and living according to nature, to the natural. Somewhat legalistic, but governed by trying to take our natural instincts and redirect them or harness them or deny them. Just deny suffering, deny feelings. Sort of like legalists in a sense, right? It's all about what people see on the outside, and yet there's a struggle within, right? Then the Epicureans, they're all about avoiding pain about seeking natural and necessary pleasure. So they were in some sense like the licensed folks. They just wanted to do whatever they wanted to do. And so inevitably what happens is left to their ends, the Stoics would become arrogant and cold and unfeeling and emotionless. And I'm stereotyping, but stereotypes are for a reason, right? And the Epicureans would become pleasure-loving and self-indulgent. Neither one of them became self-actualized in any sense. Neither one of them could deal well with suffering. One of them tried to ignore it, and the other tried to avoid it. Now, you can try to ignore or avoid suffering and pain and difficulty all you want, and you can try to escape into things that will only make it worse. But both tried to find meaning and purpose outside of themselves, and they ended up stuck. It's always the case. Since the beginning of human history till now, the brightest of the brightest of the brightest. You know, they interviewed people at Harvard, young students at Harvard, and they said to them, is truth relative or absolute? In other words, is, is, there, is there a standard of truth that's outside of us, or is it just based on our feelings of it? And so they all said, truth is relative. Truth is just entirely relative. It's, it's not absolute at all. And this was the discussion, and not only is it untrue that we believe as Christians it's untrue, but then the person asking the question went a little beyond that, and they said, is that statement then that you made, that truth is relative, is that relative or absolute? And it was lost on them that they were in this loop of, in other words, what I'm trying to say, and I'm not trying to do a mental exercise, just follow me, what what they're trying to say is, if you're standing and you're saying truth is relative, you're making an absolute statement that undermines the statement truth is relative. And these are supposed to be the brightest minds in the world. And they didn't understand that. And so here you had the brightest philosophers and the brightest minds in the world and they didn't understand it. Jesus Christ stood before Pontius Pilate and Pontius Pilate looked him in the face and said, what is truth? See, unless God's opened your eyes, truth, truth can be right there. And you can miss it. You can have this amazing intellect and you can miss it. And so verse 18 continues and said this. And it's interesting that methods stay the same. When when you can't meet somebody on their intellectual high ground, what you do is you name call, right? 
I mean, that's still, that's what we do now. So verse 18 continues, and some of them said, what does this babbler wish to say? Because they knew. Because deep down inside, their spirits were probably being, being poked and prodded. And so what do they do? They name call. Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus in the resurrection. And they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know this new teaching that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. And it says, now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. That's all they did. Paul's about to address the men of Athens concerning Jesus and salvation. Now, it's important that we realize that Paul was not only a Jew, but a former Pharisee. And he was before a group of people that not too long ago, he would have avoided and he would have condemned for their idolatry, for their behavior, for the fact that they were not his nationality. Paul was extremely racist. He would not even give them a second thought. He would have judged them. He would have discarded them. He would have put a label on them and marginalized them and walked away. That's what Paul would have done before his conversion. The Bible teaches us that after centuries of occupation by the Persians, the Greeks, and at that time, the Romans, most of the Jews wanted nothing more to do with Gentile rulers and pagan customs. They wanted them out of Israel. They wanted the nation to be free under the rule of a Messiah. That's what they were waiting for. When Jesus came, when Jesus cried coming into Jerusalem, he cried because they were looking for a king that would rescue them from their circumstances. And Jesus was a king that wanted to rescue them from their condition, which is much more important. But Jesus knew they were going to miss that because they were going to focus on the external instead of the internal, and it broke his heart. So I want to read through it, and then I want to point some things out. Verse 22, so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Paul is very, very thoughtful in his dialogue here and his approach. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. And even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, like an image formed by the art and imagination of men. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. 
And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of this resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Of course, that's always the case. The message of the cross is foolishness, the Bible says, to those who are perishing. But others said, we will hear you about this again. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus and the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. In other words, some people said, that's crazy, we're going to walk away. Some people said, ah, you know, I, I, you know, I want to hear a little more. And some people said, I want to be part of that. Today, here in this room, there can be people trying to wrestle with those very same things. The same type of culture exists here today as it did in Paul's time, very similar. Today in America, we have nationalities and groups who have differing customs, different beliefs, practices, traditions, languages, living here now. And those of us who follow the Lord Jesus must realize in order to get the gospel to these people, we're going to have to get familiar with things people say and do. We have to understand culture. And so as much as it will help us and take us out of our comfort zone, because here's the thing, everybody is deeply religious. Everybody worships something. I'll show you this all the time. When people have a problem with the church and you ask them why, they're going to immediately list things that are right and wrong. How do you do that if there's no God? How do you judge the church or Christians according to a standard that you yourself are saying doesn't exist? But they will because people are moralists. People are deeply spiritual. People worship. Nobody can escape that. Paul understood that. We're all deeply religious. They don't believe in the church because of moral judgment. In fact, saying you have no, no right to judge me is doing the same thing they say we shouldn't do. See, all people throughout history must contend with the big questions. Origins meaning morality and destiny. Origins meaning morality and destiny. Origins, where do we come from? How did it begin? Big question. Meaning, how do we derive meaning and purpose out of life? What gives our life purpose? Now, people are, are different in their, in how much maybe focus overtly or how conscious they are, but subconsciously, everybody wrestles with this. It's part of the human experience. Morality, how do we determine what, right from wrong? All people make moral judgments all the time. I've never met anybody, no matter how committed to the atheism they were, that didn't live their life making moral judgments. It's inescapable. And destiny, what happens when we die? Is this life the end? People will have all kinds of views of, this, of these things. And so we can sit and we can say, well, I have all my answers, and I know my answers on the test are right. And we can be like that kid, you know, that's always, you know. But Paul met people where they were. Paul took what people thought they knew about God, and he tried to open up to them a fuller understanding. What you worship in ignorance, what is unknown to you, let me proclaim to you. The thing you're searching for, as a pastor, as a counselor, as somebody who sat with people and they're most broken, the best thing I can do is say, there is one who said, come to me and I will give you rest. 
And as broken as you are, and as much suffering as you're experiencing, I promise you there's a God who loves you and wants to meet you and comfort you and give you peace. And that transcends all our intellectual arguments. You see, people deep down inside are broken and they're lost and they long for something. They might not know what it is. They might have, not have language to express it. And so you can talk down to them or you can talk at them or you can be arrogant like you have all the answers or you can meet them in their situation and talk to them about the freedom that Christ promises. What you worship in ignorance, let me proclaim to you. I want to quickly help us to notice what Paul does here. Everybody with me? Got a couple more minutes. I'm going to get through it. It's important. First, Paul acknowledged how religious they were. He started with a compliment. He didn't be like, no, 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 wait a minute. You guys are way off. No, Paul says, I noticed you're religious. So when somebody talks to you about their morality, be like, you seem to be very spiritual. You seem to have a lot of views on right and wrong. Paul found an entry point. <clears throat> he pointed out that they were striving to be very religious to the point of honoring an unknown God. Very similar to people in the U.S., religious but not Christian. They don't want to hurt anyone's feelings by not recognizing their God, so they sort of cover their, all their bases. This is to an unknown God. This is to everybody. Then he preached to them about the one true God. He describes the many attributes of God. He says God's the creator of the universe. He created the world and everything in it. He's the sustainer of life. He's saying God gave life to everything, the animals, the plants. Not only does he give life, but he sustains it. He's the ruler of all nations. And I love this point because there have been many nations that have ruled the world. The Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Rome, Romans. In fact, many comparisons have been drawn to Rome and America. And here's a reminder for us. All five of those great nations have fallen. And we know that God is in control of what happens to and in every nation. Then Paul says, God's the f I'm going to go through this quickly. But God's the father of mankind. He created male and female. He breathed life into us. He knew that he would have to pay the price of our sin so that he could have a relationship with us. And he's the judge of the world. Paul says, in the end, we will stand before God and you'll be judged according to your works or you'll be seen through the blood of Christ. That's how it works for everybody. Paul didn't, didn't deny. He didn't placate them. He didn't not speak truth. He was just... His method, his approach, and some people mock the message of Jesus. And some people agree to hear the message again. And some people believe and confess and are saved. See, there are many who gave their lives to Jesus and began to fellowship with one another. And I believe it was because of Paul's approach. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up now. And as I do, if you would just stand with me as we prepare to close. Father, we are grateful for your truth, for your power, your spirit, your word. And we are grateful, I'm grateful for people who took the time to care deeply for me. That they weren't just trying to get me to think a certain way 
but they were introducing me to the one who was truth, who provided freedom. And so, God, we ask that you help us to be sensitive, to be gentle. God, it's so hard in a culture that's just increasingly hostile toward you, that ridicules you. It's easy to become angry, to become frustrated. But help us to be measured, to be thoughtful, to do as Paul did, which is to meet people where they are and bring them to where they need to be. Guide that process, God. Father, I pray that if there's anyone here now who doesn't know you, who hasn't put their faith in you, who's still wrestling and trying to determine right from wrong, apart from some standard, and is trying to find meaning and purpose and value apart from you, God, I pray that even now, God, that you intercede, that you change their heart, that you change their eternity. Father, it's not about how well-spoken or intelligent we are. It's about how surrendered we are to your spirit. And so, God, help us to be a church that people say those people are turning the world upside down for Jesus. That's all we want to do, that by all means we might save some. Continue, God, to have your way in and through each of us. In Jesus' name, we pray.